As you dive into this teaching from High Point Church, we pray that it will help you grow in your faith as you believe in, belong to, and become more like Jesus. If these messages bless you, would you consider giving back in support of this ministry? You can give and learn more about High Point at www.highpoint.church. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. Now, uh, when I was a kid, maybe like most kids, I was, I was obsessed with building, right? Like most young boys, like building things. But so much so that uh, when I was deciding where to go to college, I was uh, thinking to go to architecture school. And uh, last minute, I decided uh, to go to music school for obvious financial reasons. Um, and, but, but I loved building. I loved the idea of how do you construct things and how do you, how do you design things? And so a little quiz as we get going this morning, uh, how long do you think that it took to build Wrigley Field? Two months. Took them two months. Go look it up. They had prefabbed all the steel, everything that had going on. How about the Eiffel Tower? The Eiffel, three years? Close. Two years. Two months and five days. Do you know what took three years to build, though, was the Sears Tower. Now, notice I'm not calling it the Willis Tower because I'm from Chicago. Okay, anybody. So it took three years to build the Willis Tower. How long do you think it took us to build our our, uh, fixer-upper house that we bought? Well, I don't know. I'll let you know when it's done. We're seven years in. We're still going. But things of value take time to build, do they not? They take work and effort. And so the question we want to answer today is, well, how long does it take to build the church? Well, how do we build the church? What are the components? What are the materials that are required to build the church? That's what we're going to see today in Acts chapter 4. So grab your Bible. If you have one, grab your phone, go to the app. Grab your Bible. We're going to Acts chapter four. We're finishing up. We're wrapping up our series called Dear Lord. We've been looking at all these different prayers throughout the Bible to learn to do what? To learn to how can we communicate with God? How can we pray to God? How can we hear from God? And so this is the last in our series, Dear Lord. We're going to see it from Acts chapter four. The title of the message is A Prayer of Boldness. And so everything we're going to talk about today in talking about what it means to build the church is what does it mean to have a bold faith? And I want to suggest to you that to have a bold faith means that we need to have some bold prayers in how we communicate with God. So let's dive right in. You got your Bible? If you have it, say yes. Yes, Acts chapter four, we're starting in verse 23. And we're going to see here Peter and John having this bold moment of prayer. I'll give you the context in a minute. Verse 23. When they were released, released from where? Well, I'll share in a minute. It wasn't good. They went to their friends and they reported that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God saying, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, now he's quoting another prayer, why did the Gentiles rage? The people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. For truly in the city where they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. So you get in this prayer, some people are against Jesus here. They're going, what's going on? 
Jesus, who you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all what, church? Boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered, this is my prayer for us today, together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with what church? Boldness. So I want to share with you five of these prayers. We see some mini prayers within this prayer, all about boldness. Here's the first bold prayer. It's a prayer of unity. And a prayer of unity sounds something like this. God, we believe in this together. We're praying together as a church. Now, before we dive right into the text, let me give you a little bit of context. Earlier on in Acts chapter four, what we see happening here is that Peter and John, and now catch it, we're in Acts chapter four. Acts chapter one, Jesus is still alive. This is when Jesus ascends back to heaven. So we're not that far along the road in the early church when Jesus was crucified, when he was buried, when he rose again, then when he ascended back to heaven. Just a little while later, you see Peter and John, his disciples, and what they're doing is they're going to worship in the temple. On their way to the temple, they come across a guy who's paralyzed. You can read this earlier in Acts chapter four. They come across a guy who's paralyzed and in the power of the Holy Spirit, what Peter and John do is they heal the man that was paralyzed. The man stands up. The man is healed. Now you can imagine with a miraculous healing, which they talk about in their prayer, would you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of Jesus. That's what's going on here. Now, the religious leaders of the day are among the people that crucified Jesus. So as Peter and John are coming along, they heal this man. You can imagine crowds begin to gather. That's a pretty miraculous thing. What just happened here? How is that possible? Now, to say the least, the religious leaders of the day are not super happy about this. They had just crucified Jesus. They, they rejected Jesus. So what do they do? They pull Peter and John in. They actually end up arresting them. They keep them overnight, and the next day they hold a council. So basically, Peter and John are at trial for speaking with boldness, proclaiming the name of Jesus and the resurrection. So you have all these people, people of power, that are against Peter and John. Now, you would think at some point, maybe John would turn to Peter and be like, hey, let's just for a moment dial down the Jesus thing for just a second. <laughs> like, they're kind of against us here. I'm not quite sure how this trial is going to go. Look back a few verses earlier, verse 19 and 20. Look what they say. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge everybody in the crowd. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. You're not going to shut us up. If you've seen and experienced and know the things that we know because of who Jesus is, we can't stop speaking of the things we've seen and heard. 
So do you think they're just going to cool it down for a minute? Do you think they're just going to zip it up for a minute? No. They're going to, with boldness, in the midst of adversity, in the midst of people that are anti-everything that they are proclaiming, that they will proclaim the name of Jesus. Now let's get back into the text. Where's the unity at? Verse 23. So look at this. When they were released, they went and their friends, you see a theme here? And they reported what the chief priests and the elders had to say to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices, what? Together. And so there's a moment here where, where Peter and John are experiencing this. They, they go out. They were unwilling to not proclaim the name of Jesus and what the other Jesus followers come together. And they go, well, we must worship Jesus together. It's in unity. Eight times in one and a half verses together, unified. Can I suggest to you today that I believe individualism is one of the greatest threats to our relationship with God in our world today. We live in an extremely individualistic society. I'm going to think the thoughts that I want to have. I'm going to live the way that I want to live. I'm going to feel the way that I want to feel. And if you make me feel offended, well, you're out. Do you know what community says? Community says we are going to live the way that God wants us to live. We in love are going to, in accountability, say some things that might be hard to hear, but guess what? They might be right to grow me, to disciple me, to make me look more and more like Jesus. And so rather than focusing on myself all the time, what if we switched our mindset? What is best for our community? What is best for our church and the church as a whole? What is best in the eyes of God? And what if I submit myself under that in community to care for me, to love me, to correct me when I need to hear it? This is why I loved last weekend. We gathered together, many of you, who was at the summit last weekend. Many people gathered together, leaders in our church. Why did we do that? Just to blow off a Saturday morning because we had nothing better to do? No, because we wanted to be united together as we head into a new ministry year. We wanted to hear from God. What would you have us, uh, for us in the year ahead? We wanted to get trained and equipped to go, as Ephesians 4 says, and go do the work of ministry together. And so as one unified body, we go out and we be the church. There's a quick snapshot Let's look at it real quick. It was a great time together. Here's uh, last Saturday at the summit.
Yeah, we can praise God for that. But here's why I show that, because it's one church, one mission, united together to go and share with the world who Jesus is as, and this is important, God is working in us, transforming us, changing us. You see, Peter and John, uh, they weren't going to be quiet about who Jesus was and is. Peter and John had conviction they weren't going to be stopped. Can I tell you that today, in our day and age, more and more each year, it seems like it's easy as a Christian to want to kind of recoil and step back and stay quiet. That some of the convictions of the world at times, hear me, seem like they're bigger than the convictions of those of us who are following Jesus. But here's the thing, when we band together as believers, united in community, it gives us a boldness, a boldness to pray and a boldness to go. Now, here's another one that we see. It's a prayer of awe. A prayer of awe sounds something like this. God, nobody's like you. Nobody's besides you. Nobody's above you. God, I'm in awe of who you are, what you've created. God, I'm in awe of what you've done with my life. So let's go to verse 24. This is really where the prayer begins. It starts with sovereign Lord. I'll define that in a minute. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who through the mouth of our father, David. That's the psalmist your servant said by the Holy Spirit. Why did the Gentiles rage? Now, why are they getting into all this? The Gentiles are raging. People are plotting. Whoa. Well, I just told you in Acts chapter one is when Jesus ascended. I mean, they're recollecting, they're going back and going, man, why are so many people against Jesus? To the point of which these people here that were plotting and raging, they, they sent Jesus to the cross and they crucified him. This word sovereign, maybe you've heard it before. I wonder what, what exactly does that word mean? Uh, because as I see what John and Peter, what they're praying together, united as, a, as followers of Jesus. I think what they're really saying is, God, do you see what's going on down here? We could use a little backup. You ever feel that way? But they start their prayer saying, Sovereign Lord. I've heard it said like this. Here's a definition of what it means to be sovereign. That God alone is all-powerful, totally authoritative to the extent of being able to override all other powers and all other authorities completely. It means that even in the swirling of the world, even in the difficulties of the world, even in the unknowns of the world, that God is still completely in control. There's nobody like him. There's nobody that compares to him. There never has been. There never will be. So I want to encourage you as we talk about a prayer of awe. Where is it that you are most inspired to experience the awe of God? For me, it's often in the grandeur of his creation. When I can get outside and, and, and be in the mountains or be in a space that I just go, Man, this world that God has created is so big. 
Maybe you experience his awe with your family or with your kids when you go, God, man, you just blessed me so much. And, you know, maybe the awe is just putting on worship music, getting in his word and remembering who he actually is. You know, for all of us, it should be even just the little wins in life that we would slow down as we move so fast to just go, look what God did there, look what God did there, look what God did there. I'm in awe of who he is. It's a prayer of awe, sovereign Lord. I know you're in control. Almost uh, once or twice a year, our family, we uh, drive out to Colorado. Our friends have a place that we love to go to and we go and um, all the kids are playing and the, the place that they have, it's, it's situated literally at the top of a mountain. And so we drive this long, long, long road all the way up to the top of the mountain. And we get to this house and we have this tradition, like almost every night, especially if we're there in the summer, uh, there's a little plateau that we can walk up to from the house and we'll drag out the lawn chairs and we bring them up and we just sit outside as the sun's going down. If you've ever been in the mountains, you kind of see like the silhouettes changing of the mountain, behind the mountain, behind the mountain, and the sun is going down. And and I can visualize it in my head right now because so many times I've sat in that exact same place and going, God is so big. God is so in control and he made me and he knows me and he loves me. It's a posture of awe. Where do you remember and experience the awe of God? Wherever that is, can I just encourage you, go sit in that place on a regular basis. They remember his goodness and we remember how powerful and how loving God is. Here's how Paul Tripp talks about this awe as we're talking about boldness here. Paul Tripp says this, that every awesome thing in creation is designed to point you to the one who alone is worthy of capturing and controlling the awe of your searching and hungry heart. Do you know that your heart, searching and hungry, your searching and hungry heart, it will find a thing to be in awe of. The question is, will that thing you're in awe of Will it pay out over time? And the only thing that does is when we're in awe of God. Because otherwise we fix our eyes on things. We're we're in awe of something. We strive for some things. And they might not even be bad things. But when they're in place of the awe of our creator, we're disappointed every time. Here's another prayer we're going to see right in the text. These five prayers. It's a prayer of Trust. The prayer of trust says, God, I know you're in control. Uh oh. Like that awe thing, that was cool. The community thing, I'm all about community. This control thing? Come on, don't leave me hanging up here. I'm the only one that like has some control problems in my life, that I want to do things my own way, the way that I want to do them. The prayer. Of trust is one going, God, I remember again that you're in control. So look at here. I gave you the context already of where this happened. Verse 27. Look what goes on here. For truly in this city, and what city are they in? The same city that Jesus was crucified in. They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. So who's against Jesus here? 
all the people that they had just come from. This is real time in the presence of people actively against Jesus. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate. Um, how did that go in the crucifixion of Jesus? Not super well, those two names. Along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And then look, look, look. Look real closely at their prayer. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What they're saying here is they are literally praying all these things that were against Jesus, even Jesus going to the cross, what your hand and your plan had predestined. Even Jesus going to the cross for your and my sin, taking it upon himself, giving you his righteousness. Even all these people that are still angry about Jesus and now they're angry at us and they're coming after us. God, you're in control. It's your plan that I'm submitting my life to. You know, it's easy to submit our life to God and say, you're in control when it's all going well. Yeah, God's totally in control. I totally submit my life to him. Then things go off the rails. <laughs> you're like, nope, I'm going to grab the wheel again. I do it. But this, this prayer, if we want to have boldness, the boldness is when life starts to feel like it's out of control. When life starts to feel like it's not going our way, we go, God, I still trust you. Now, maybe you've even asked the questions before. I know I have, and they're common questions. I mean, if God's in control, why is there evil in the world? I mean, if God's so in control, then how is it possible that bad things happen to good people? Ever heard those kind of questions? I'm going to go fast, but let me share five. It's not a complete list, but five ways that God actually uses suffering. Is anybody pumped about suffering? Like, sign me up. But God will use it in your life. God does not cause it in your life, but God will use it. We're going to go fast. Five ways God uses suffering. Well, one is for him to grow us. That we can be stretched and shaped to look more like Jesus. Look at James 1. James 1, 2 and 4 says, count it all joy. It doesn't even say just endure it. It says actually count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Here's another one. To comfort others. Well, what does that mean? Well, that when you've been through suffering, that you can actually comfort other people in suffering. Second Corinthians 1 talks about it. What, so that we may able to be, be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Why? Because God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, his, mercy, his Father of mercy and God of all comfort. He is the God of comfort. He bestows that comfort on you that you can then comfort others. Here's another one to give us hope. Romans 5, 3, and 4 says it like this. Not only that, but we rejoice. See the theme? This Bible thing's crazy. <laughs> Some of the stuff in here. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Here's two more. That God uses suffering to bring us closer to him. Now, if you've ever read the book of Job, you know that this is a book of suffering. 
And look what it says here, that I had heard of you. I've heard with my ears, Job is saying, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. It's almost like intellectually I understood what you, who you were and who God was. But in my deepest time of need, as you meant me, God, I understood, I saw it now with my own eyes, who you were. That's what suffering produces. Here's one more. It's to prepare us for glory. Here's 2 Corinthians 4. All these ways that God uses suffering. Hey, don't lose heart. Can I just slow down if you're in a period of suffering in your life, whatever that might be today. Take these words to heart. Do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, it doesn't feel that way, to be clear, in the suffering. But in the grand scheme of eternity, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, I don't know which one of these, if we can put those up, that, that maybe you need to claim today to understand that in the midst of your difficulty, affliction, and suffering, that God is preparing some things inside of you in the midst of the difficulty. And I'll tell you what, when you're suffering, if you're suffering right now, a prayer of boldness to relinquish control back to God, while it might be one of the hardest things you have to do, is one of the boldest things you can do in your faith. You know, uh, maybe you are um, suffering and um, or going through something, or maybe it's an amazing season of your life. Either way, we have this 30 days of prayer. You can pick one of these up in the lobby. You can also find it on the website. And what we're challenging us to do together as a church here in September, it started yesterday, so you're all one day late, okay? But, but that every day in the month of September, as we launch this new ministry year, and September's a time of kind of renewal and fresh starts and back to school and all those kind of things, that would we commit together to be in prayer? And all this does is just give a great guide of some things that you can pray every day, whether it's in the morning or at night. And so I want to encourage you, go get that online, pick one up on the way out. And it's going to increase the boldness of your faith. Here's two more. It's a prayer of effectiveness. A prayer of effectiveness sounds like this. God, use me no matter the cost. No matter what it takes. I mean, God, like as long as it's not like super hard. As long as it doesn't take too much of my time, God. God forbid I would actually have to use some of my money or resources, God. But, but as long as that use me, Lord, to do what, what, whatever it takes, as long as it doesn't inconvenience my life. Eh. It's a bold prayer to pray. God, use me no matter the cost. You want to know a cost that my wife Sarah and I prayed over 15 years ago now? We said, God... We think you're calling us to ministry and we'll go anywhere in the world you want us to go. And then he said, go 10 minutes down the road. It's still in Illinois where there's nothing good. No, no, no. Can I amend that prayer? Whatever it costs. Now that's a bold prayer. The question for you and me are, are we willing to hear how God might respond to that prayer. Look at verse 29. 
And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Remember the context. God will do whatever it costs. When I'm in the middle of a trial, in the middle of this council meeting of all these people who murdered Jesus, by the way, I'm still going to say who Jesus is. I'm still going to proclaim his resurrection. All these threats grant to your servant to continue to, to, to what? To speak your word. Do you notice they don't even pray, pray hey God, um, could you like take these people away from us? Could you kind of set them at bay a little bit? No, what, what's their prayer in the midst of all this? Their prayer is that your servants will continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. It's an amazing thing. That their number one prayer, which by the way, they're going through a version of suffering and they also just lost Jesus. God, my number one prayer is that, that I'd be able to continue to speak your word with boldness. That's my prayer. It's a bold prayer. You might know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a theologian and a pastor in the 1940s during World War II. He's a German pastor. And Bonhoeffer was an active um, person out against Nazi Germany and, and Hitler. He was very vocal. Two days after Hitler came into power, Bonhoeffer goes on public radio and he attacks Hitler and he warns all the German people of what could possibly come and he preaches the gospel. There's a good idea to keep yourself safe and secure. And so Bonhoeffer is actively uh, denouncing what's happening in Nazi Germany while he's preaching the gospel. He very briefly came to America. While he was in America, he had such a conviction that I need to go back and be with the German people. They were under all this tyranny. He flew back to Germany to be with the German people. All the while, he continues to teach the gospel and preach the gospel. And... Uh, what Bonhoeffer uh, later ends up doing is he, he gets engaged, then he um, gets arrested for preaching the gospel and for speaking out against Hitler. He not only gets locked up, but then at the age of 39 years old, he's stripped naked, he's taken out back, and he's hung as a martyr for Jesus. There was an author that wrote about one of the medical doctors that witnessed Bonhoeffer be killed. And this is what th that medical doctor said. Said, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor, praying fervently. We're talking about bold prayers to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout, so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, 39 years old, engaged, not yet married, huge future ahead. He again said a short prayer and then climbed the few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Now, that's a man that was praying prayers of effectiveness. God, use me no matter what it takes. Do you see the theme in the passage today? I have a choice. I can just kind of zip it up and be quiet and kind of back away into the shadows and maybe nobody will notice me. 
or like Peter and John, I can be bold in my prayer, bold in my conduct, bold in my faith, or like Bonhoeffer, I can be bold in my prayer, bold in my conduct, bold in my faith, no matter what it costs me. Next weekend, I want to invite you to bring a friend with you. Uh, We're starting a brand new series. We're going to be in the book of Galatians this fall, and it's called Guilt-Free Christianity. Nine steps to find freedom in Christ. And I guarantee you that you have a neighbor, that you have a friend, that somebody that needs to come with you. Would you have the boldness this week to simply invite somebody to join you? Would you have the boldness? Well, what if they reject me? What if they say, that's up to God. They don't want to hear you. Great. Hey, I'd love to have you there. Nah, I'm not. I'm not. I don't want to go. Okay. Still love to have you. (laughs) Sometimes we get so fearful of the simplest things. You know how many people I've talked to about Jesus and invited to church and do, you know, I've yet to have somebody, you know, hold me in trial like Peter and John. How dare you invite me to church? We're taking it out of the courthouse. It's never happened. Would we have boldness in this season? Here's the last thought, the last prayer that we're going to see. It's a prayer of dependence. Don't miss this one. The prayer of dependence says, God, I need you. In order to do all of these things, the unity we talked about, to experience his his awe to have prayers of, of effectiveness that God, you would use me. It, it's all predicated on the idea that we would recognize that we need God. Now look here, verse 31. Look what happened when their bold faith. Their bold faith, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Why? Because they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Yeah, that was a great time for the one person to clap about speaking the word of God with boldness. But would this be true of us, church? In a day and age where people say whatever they want to say and post to YouTube whatever they want to post to YouTube and put on their social media whatever, Would we be a people of bold faith? And to have a bold faith means we need to have some bold prayers. Hey, Steve, that's a great idea. But like Peter, John, I mean, they're kind of a big deal. They got to like hang out with Jesus and like there's disciples. Like that's not me. Just kind of getting up and going to work and trying to do my thing. Like I I don't know if I have the faith that Peter and John had. I mean, you're kind of asking for a lot. Let's rewind to verse 13 as we end. Look what Acts 13, 4, 13 says. Now when they, these are all the people in the crowd at this council at the trial. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, I'm not saying this is you, I'm just saying we kind of all fit in here. They were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. If you don't remember anything else, remember this today. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The qualifier that made their full faith bold. The qualifier that allowed them to stand in a bunch of people who had literally murdered Jesus and still proclaim his name. 
the, the same qualifier that allowed Diedrich Bonhoeffer to stand up for his faith against a malicious nation and dictator. They had been with Jesus. If you want more boldness in your life, if you want more conviction in your life, if you're wondering what, what kind of is my life all about, and just get with Jesus. Because getting with Jesus, praying bold prayers, produces bold faith. Let's pray together. God, it's easy to say these words that I'm saying right now. What's hard to do is to live it out. It's easy to preach about conviction and boldness. And it's easy to see some heroes of the faith like Peter and John and even more recent heroes of the faith like Bonhoeffer. And, and, and we can say it with our lips, but God, would you convict us in our hearts and would we would do it in our deeds? Would it actually be who we are? Would boldness define how we live? regardless of the circumstances around us. Would that be so for us as a church? Would we challenge one another, encourage one another? Give us a boldness, Lord, to proclaim your name and to live the way that you've designed us to live. If you believe that prayer, say amen. amen. Let's stand together.